How much would Elon Musk pay for my dustbin? Ah, the rest of NSYNC's still pissed off with Justin. Hello again, dears. Hello. That two years went quickly. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Uh, it's been amazing to hear from you again and hear what you've been up to in the intervening years since uh, we last convened, where some of you are like, oh, I used to be a zookeeper, but now I'm uh, training to be emperor of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of that, isn't there? It's lovely. I used to work in Asda and now I'm an anthropologist doing a PhD. Lyndon from Huddersfield updated us. He now has a hummus shop called Hummusfields. Oh, uh, my heart My heart nearly exploded with joy when I read that. Good. Well done, Lyndon. I, I feel like Yorkshire craft hummus are three glorious words to see written down together. Oh, it's just like a kind of dream destination for you. <laughs> it is. I'm actually going to Yorkshire for <gasps> um, uh, May half term. We haven't decided where yet. Well, obviously Huddersfield. Well... There's been a lot of, uh, you know, Happy Valley uh, tourism recently, hasn't mm. there? So, we've, you know, we've been thinking we might go to the murdery bits, uh, the, you know, the, the, the murdery arty bits. But yeah. <laughs> I might make it down to Huddersfield. If I do, Lyndon, I will be in touch. I expect a free pot of chickpeas. Wow. Demanding things already. We've only been back a minute. We should say, actually, for those of you who haven't heard the trailer that came out before this, this is just a one-off special, so don't get too excited. Um, we're not back, you know, on a weekly or fortnightly or monthly basis. Get appropriately excited. Don't get unexcited. Get excited about the here and now. Exactly. And don't think about the future because who knows what it will hold. It will not hold regular answer me this. My favourite tweet about that was from Peter who said, um, I always thought that rather than cancelling the show, you should just keep extending the interval between episodes each time. Mm. It would have been amazing to hear you announcing it was a now decadely podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm into it. This rate, biannual, we could probably safely assume that that's possible. I mean, what would be great actually is if we could do what Benny and Bjorn have done and just create Answer Me This Voyage in a hangar in East London. And you could just, just go and see us performing as holograms with some AI-powered question-answering <laughs> abilities behind the scenes. <laughs> I'm already a hologram. The most popular question that was asked is one that I feel the answer would be the same for in about five or ten years' time, which is, where is Dave from Smethwick? If he's mm -hmm. not in Smethwick, then we do not know, but we haven't heard from him for, what, a decade? Yeah. People care about him more than they care about us, which... Uh, That's fair. Yeah, so we can't answer that most commonly... Ask question, but these are some questions we are going to answer. The first one is from Lauren, who says, I am relatively new to the UK, having grown up in South Africa. I lived in Canada until very recently. Needless to say, I'm still figuring out British shopping. Mm. To me, South African and Canadian shops are not that different to their British equivalents. I'm curious what happens next. Two weeks ago, says Lauren, I tried to order a bunch of bananas through an online grocery delivery. When it arrived, I was somewhat bemused to receive only a single banana. Not deterred, this week, when placing my order, I diligently updated the quantity to five, and lo and behold, I received five bunches of bananas. Mm. <laughs> five bunches is too many. Mm, agree. So, Ollie, answer me this. How does one order only one bunch of bananas online? <laughs> <laughs> and the short shelf life here is the crucial issue, I feel. Um, you know, if, if you accidentally were delivered five packets of dried banana, for example, that yeah. would be irritating, but not insurmountable. Five bags of onions, just put them in a dark cupboard and they'll sit there for weeks. Might even grow their own. Oh, little children. To answer the question directly, obviously it depends which online supermarket you're using. And Lauren has not supplied us with a brand. Mm -hmm. um, so I looked first at Ocado. Mm -hmm. um, and I must say there, 
it is very clear in both pictures and words that you are getting a bunch of bananas. Um, and it, it says very clearly how many are in the bunch, you know, five per pack, six per pack. You actually can't order a single banana from Mercado. What if that is the one and it just the packers went wrong? It, well, it may have been a charity banana. Do you know what? It may have been like, sorry, we've run out of bananas. You know when they like substitute uh, stuff? Oh, uh, yeah. But like, oh, here's a, just toss her in a banana. Let her have a banana. She wanted a bunch of bananas, but we've just got one. But just give her that, be kind. We won't charge her for it. That's possible. But on Tesco, uh-huh. Britain's most popular supermarket, loose bananas are listed as bananas loose. <laughs> bananas gone wild. <laughs> and, and they cost 16 pence each. So for me, that's the clue, really, Lauren. If it's under 20 pence, then you're talking about a loose banana. If it's over a pound, then it's obviously a bunch. I guess where the issue may be is when the price falls between those two stools. Um, because if you're looking at 60p, is that a good value bunch of bananas or is it an expensive single banana? Mm. I guess just be really diligent about it, Lauren, and read the small print. Yes, I suppose two orders is not enough orders to get a proper trend noted mathematically. Now I feel it is unfortunate that this show is uh, only coming out every several years because <laughs> otherwise Lauren could update us what happens on her next couple of shops and then we would get a clearer picture as to how this banana system is. Well, I wonder if, to be fair, maybe the loose word isn't applied in Canada or South Africa because as recently as last month, a commenter on the Tesco website has clarified in a comment for other users on the Loose Bananas page, quote, Loose means when you choose one, you get one banana, smiley face. So picture oh. shows a bunch, ensure you change to the number needed. So there obviously is confusion for some international users there. Wait, I'm just going to look up on a Canadian grocery delivery system what, the, what their banana vocabulary mm. is. What is a loose banana called? Yeah. We should say at this point, I mean, this is the weirdest way to segue into this fact, but you're in Canada now. I'm still in Hertfordshire. Yeah, this is a way to say that we recently moved to Canada. Mm. Okay, organic bananas, six bananas, it says on spuds.ca. See, that's clear, isn't it? Organic bananas overripe slash imperfect for baking and smoothies, $9. In what quantity? 10 pounds or 4.5 kilograms. Okay, mm. so it just could be this kind of translation issue where indeed, you know, here in Britain, it's that word loose you need to know. Not even seeing an option to buy just a banana. It's six or 4.5 kilos. Right. That's it. Those are the increments. I mean, actually, to be fair, Tesco are offering a service there that maybe, you know, other online supermarkets wouldn't. Can you order just one banana? Yeah, but there's a minimum order. So you'd be paying a delivery charge oh. if you did that. But yes, I think theoretically you can from Tesco just order one banana to be delivered to your home. It's probably the kind of thing billionaires do, just to make a point. <laughs> Here is a question from Anonymous in Washington, D.C., who says... I'm about to start a job at the White House. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited. But Ollie, answer me this. What do I say when people ask what I do for a living? Is there a way to say I work at the White House and not sound like a jerk? <laughs> but being vague about I work for the government then makes people dig and that seems worse. So yes. how do I talk about a fancy job without sounding like a dick? When you're in Washington, D.C., quite a lot of people are going to have fancy jobs and, yeah. and just be fine, like, sounding like a bit of a dick. I mean, basically, doesn't everybody in Washington, D.C. work in some government-adjacent job? I mean, even if you're working as a cleaner or a domestic, you're doing it for people who work in government, essentially, aren't you? That's why they're there. If you're talking to people back home, I guess, if you're from a different place where it seems swish that you've even just moved to Washington, D.C., mm. or if you're online dating or something like that, 
then I guess you could say something like, I don't know if this will translate into American, but the equivalent in Britain would be like, I work in the Westminster bubble, right? I'm part of the London media elite. Something that sounds <laughs> self-deprecating, like you know that it's it being a bit wanky. So I work in the Washington politics bubble might work. Or you could just say, oh, I work in the White House in such a sarcastic way that they think you're lying, but you're actually telling the truth. <laughs> I think the only gracious way is to be enthusiastic, isn't it? It's to be like, I, I work at the White House. I'm sorry, I can't tell you more. It's top secret. No, there I you think, go. Conversation I, ended. I think, I think being sarcastic about something that other people think is really amazing just makes you seem like a bit of a dick. Exactly. Like when I was on Radio 4 and you, you meet someone who says, uh, oh, are you on the radio these days? I would never say, oh, yeah, I do a radio show because then it does. It do, the next question is, oh, what station are you on? And then you have to say, Radio 4, like, like, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, you know, <laughs> the biggest speech station in the UK. It's easier to say proudly, oh, yeah, I'm on BBC Radio 4 and I do this show called This. I've known some people that have worked in similar fancy places. I think one way when you work somewhere like that is just to immediately tell them something kind of weird and mundane about it. Yes. Like, you wouldn't believe there's only one toilet in the whole White House. Yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. You look at the other options. Yes, I work for the US government is too vague. Mm. Um, I work for the executive branch of the government is wanky. Mm. And I work for the president of the United States feels a bit Watergate-y. So I think <laughs> all in all, I work at the White House is the best compromise and you've yeah. already arrived at it. I think so. I think see how these conversations go once you're working there. Maybe that will be your guide to where you want to steer them. But I don't think you sound like a jerk just by saying that. I think people will be so curious if they aren't already working at the White House themselves. It does lead to following questions, though, doesn't oh, it? Of course. If the place where you work is world famous, you then have to brace yourself for 10 questions about it. Afraid so. And that's just uh, the tax you pay for working there, as well as the actual tax I hope you pay. <laughs> Here's a question from Nick in Leicester, who says... Driving down the A120 to visit my parents in the north of Essex, I always pass the road sign for Great Dunmo. Mm -hmm. This sign proudly declares that Great Dunmo is an, quote, ancient flitch town, as if this is something we should all implicitly understand to be noteworthy. <laughs> so, Helen, answer me this. On the hour of your great unretirement, could you please help me finally discern what is an ancient flitch town and why is that important? This is fun. Okay, Great Dunmo is famous in the flitching circles mm. for having a, a ritual every four years called the flitch trials. Um, it used to be what? annual, but now it's only every four years, I think maybe because the flitch trials is quite intense. Okay, can I just say, before you reveal what flitching is, obviously it sounds a bit like felching and that's funny. The other thing I'm thinking is, is it a type of wood? Is it something to do with timber? That's the only vague like association I'm making with that word. You know what? I had that association too. I thought, is it something to do with like a bundle of sticks or something? Right. You know, a broom that they use to whip people through the streets. That kind of medieval English bullshit. No. Well, no, I just thought Flitchtown would be like, you know, the place the wood comes from that they build the homes from or something. Well, it makes more sense than the reality, Ollie. <laughs> In a Flitch trial, couples must convince a jury of six local bachelors and six local maidens, just give me a second to retch at the word maidens, that <laughs> those couples have in a year and a day never wished themselves to be unwed. What? So they've never thought, God, I wish I wasn't in this relationship, or they've never been interested in someone else. And if they are successful at convincing the jury of that, because there are also litigators employed on behalf of the flitch, to try to persuade the jury that they should not win the flitch. But if they do win the flitch, what happens is 
they receive half a pig. The flitch is a side of a pig. Wow. Oh. And they're paraded through the town. So it's just like a medieval version of Mr. and Mrs., basically. Yes. And I was like, how does the jury know? Nick, please go to these flitch trials next time they happen in whatever part of the four-year cycle we're in. Because what are the couple saying to them to convince them? It's not something that the jury can test. Although apparently couples have had actual fistfights in front of the jury, which I think would be a giveaway that uh, they are not flitch winners. See, that sounds fun that they still do it. But the problem with any kind of historical reenactment thing, I think, is that the kind of people who gravitate to participating in that are not representative in the way that the initial flitch trial would have been. Right, right. Especially if it was young couples, you know, that means probably back then in their, like, teens, 14, 15, 16. Whereas now, it's going to be, like, 50 and 60-somethings with an interest in history who do battle reenactments, you know, they do crafts. And I just feel like... That's fun, but it's self-aware and it's going to feel like you're watching something being filmed for the one show. Yeah, but you still get half a pig. So for a lot of people, (laughs) the motivation would be that. But this is what shocked me. The Flitch trials started probably in the 12th or 13th century. It's it's old enough and well-known enough around England to have been mentioned in Chaucer's Wife of Bath Tale and Piers Plowman by William Langland in the late 1300s. So by then, enough people must have known about it that readers or Mm. people listening to those poems wouldn't have been like, wait, what's a flitch? Where's the footnote? And then it ran until the 1800s before being revived. But in that time, so like several centuries, only six couples ever won. And it was annual then. Annual. And then in 1854, there was a very popular novel called The Flitch of Bacon by William Harrison Ainsworth. And the next year, the Flitch trials were revived and he donated two Flitches for the occasion. And uh, the story is that the leading character is marrying different women in order to have the best chance of winning the Flitch at Dunmo. So interesting. It's got to be easier just to slaughter a pig yourself than get married several times. It's not unique to Dunmo either. There have been quite a lot of pork-winning competitions nationally and internationally. Also, it wasn't even in Great Dunmo that anciently. It was in Little Dunmo until the 1830s. Oh, what? And then they moved it to Great Dunmo. What a pretender you are, Great Dunmo. Do you know, you could probably go to Great Dunmo, Nick, rather than just driving past it. Yeah, treat yourself. And actually see some relics from the golden era of flitching. Yeah, I imagine they're proud of it. Because... I was in Fishguard uh, last weekend on holiday. Regular listeners to Today in History with the Retrospectors will know that Fishguard was the location of the last invasion of Britain in 1797. Wow. Oh. And uh, we went to the pub. It's called the Royal Oak, which is where the peace treaty was signed between Britain and France. Hmm. Like, this, it's a one-story town, Fishguard. Like, there's nothing else going on there <laughs> tourist-wise. Like, everything is named after the woman who saw off the um, the French as they came over. Like, you can buy a beer with her name on it. And, you know, there's a tapestry that's supposed to be, like, a homage to the, the Bayo tapestry that they've done in the local library, and you can see that. Nice. But despite the fact that the history is known and locals talk to you about it, nonetheless, when we went to the pub, It's just a normal pub. Like, we just had, you know, fish and chips and there was Welsh rugby playing on the screens in the background. And yet, at the back of the conservatory, at the back of the room where the sort of overflow seating was, with some condiments on it, (laughs) was the table where they signed the treaty in 1797. (gasps) Whoa! And everyone was just ignoring it. If that was in the States, it would cost $20 to see that table and it would be behind a velvet rope and you'd get your picture taken in front of it. And here it's literally being used 
to hold ketchup. Maybe people have had enough of gazing at the table. Yeah, yeah. And if you're exactly, we were there off season. Like maybe if you go in the summer, the tour guides probably do give you a little stop by the table. But, you know, wet weekend in March, just the locals there mainly. They're just like, yeah, we've seen the table. We know the story. Done. <laughs> we're in an amazing country. Well, you're not anymore. No, <laughs> I'm in an amazing country <laughs> where there is just history everywhere. And it just, it's amazing how, like, everyone will have driven past that town and not known what a flitch town is. And it doesn't matter because. You go on to the next town and there's some other mad history involving it if you only look for it. Oh, last year as part of our moving to Canada experience, Martin and I had to do these English tests um, where there was like reading comprehension and stuff. And I thought if mm-hmm. I had not been already fluent in English from the point where I acquired language, this would be a horrific exam it would just be so impossible because the mm. reading comprehension was an article about this i can't remember which town it is i think it's in east anglia as well the straw bear where a local young man is basically put in a more mobile wicker man type of deal right but he looks like a series of straw mops and paraded through the town and then i think the suit is symbolically burnt without the man in it and it was to me like reading a surreal fever dream if i hadn't been uh, an english speaker and from Britain, so I knew what we're capable of. Yes. (laughs) I probably would have failed because I would have thought there's no way this reading comprehension can be comprehended. (laughs) Hello, Nanani. Hello. And Martin, hi. I'm so glad you're all back, even if it is only for one special Passover uh, episode. Great to have you back. It's Shaq from London. So thrilled that you're back. Welcome back. Hello, Dolly. Welcome back. And can you save me? It's Tyler from London. I'm so happy you guys are back together. I've been listening since 2013. I'm so happy to hear that you're back, Helen, Ollie, and Martin, even for one show. Hi, Helen and Ollie. This is Peter from California. Why do I still have your phone number in my head? It's the only British number I have in my head, despite having lived there for a year. Simon from Southampton. And can you answer me this? What episode of Answer Me This is this? Can I suggest season two, episode one? Here's a question from David from Melbourne, Australia, who says, Ollie, answer me this. Why don't Christians keep kosher? (laughs) As I understand it, the dietary rules are in the Old Testament. Many Christians are keen to point out the rules from the Old Testament about homosexuality, for instance, but not so keen to leave bacon off the menu. Basically, the reason that Christians don't keep kosher was because the cohort that made up the original Christians weren't all ex-Jews, were they? Some were Jews, um, or Israelites, as they called themselves then, who accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But most Jews stayed Jews. That's why they're still Jews. So the Christians were converting people from other traditions, Gentiles, who didn't keep kosher in the first place. Yeah, and you're really going to lose some points if you're like, yeah, you have to come over to Christianity and also stop the bacons. No prawns. No prawns. Exactly. I mean, we were talking earlier about entire medieval villages kept alive by a pig being offered as a prize. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the sell was, hey, guys, we've got this new... Ju- it's like new labour, basically, isn't it? We've got new Jewishness. You still do the Ten Commandments. You still do the Bible stories. You still do the monotheism, although we're a bit sketchy, you know, whether Jesus is sort of a second god. But here's what we haven't got. We haven't got the dietary laws. We haven't got the weird festivals. We haven't got the circumcision. Come on over. So that's really what happened. But there is, of course, tedious blogs explaining why in the Bible there's some clause around this. Briefly, and I've spent too long down this rabbit hole, (laughs) (laughs) the biblical explanation in the New Testament is from Acts 10, 
Um, there is a uh -huh. passage where St. Peter is invited into the home of the Roman centurion Cornelius. And he assures the apostles that they can go into the home of a Gentile because Gentiles are no longer considered unclean. Convenient. Aha, says, says the modern day priest. Aha. So there's the inference. If Gentiles are clean, according to the New Testament at this point, then prawns must be fine too. Because prawns are Gentiles. <laughs> That's basically it. There's no bit where God says that, but it's like a contract, isn't it? It's like a contract where over time people have added clauses, you know, like the landlord originally says, clause 10 says the tenant must keep the roof watertight, but then years later, five paragraphs down, clause 12, the watertightness does not apply to the roof. You know, it's like that, where yeah. a contract confusingly says both things. Mm. So technically, Christians are supposed to obey the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments. But what Jesus is doing is saying, look, guys, too long don't read, yeah? <laughs> Just go for like, there's one God, love each other. Cut to the Messiah. And yeah. then and go to church. And that, everything else you can ignore. Yeah, but it wasn't like he did uh, the fishes and loaves of bread and it was actually sausage sandwiches that he fed the 5,000 with, was it? Exactly. There's no indication that Jesus didn't keep kosher. He'd only read the Old Testament. Right, precisely. Or that any of his disciples didn't keep kosher. And actually, I've never read the kosher laws before. So it's been quite interesting researching this because I obviously I know what they are because I'm a Jew, but I, I didn't actually, I've never read them in their source material before. Have you ever read them? No. So this is what it says in Leviticus, right? Leviticus is full of shit, by the way. The like no beards, homosexuality is wrong stuff that like people really get carried away with. That particular book of the Bible is full of shit. Carry on. It's this passage, right? The Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron and he says to uh -huh. them, Speak to the people of Israel, the Israelites, the Jews, saying, these are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. And then there's a long list that just doesn't seem like the kind of thing a god would say. Curly whirlies. <laughs> exactly. Nobody is like that. Potato waffles. It's very specific. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. So, you know, that's uh -huh. why you're allowed to do... Beeps. Beeps. Exactly. Nevertheless... Among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these, colon, the camel, uh -huh. because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof is unclean to you. And what? the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof is unclean to you. What is a rock badger? It sounds like there was a general rule that, like, if it chews the cud and parts the hoof, you're fine. Yeah. And then someone had to say, can you stop eating badgers? Yeah, <laughs> Why are you eating camels? That's a really useful animal. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea that God would mention the rock badger before the pig. Do you know what I mean? Like, the pig <laughs> seems to be the one that divides people these days. No one wants to eat the rock badger. I have found it quite easy to stay off the rock badgers, <laughs> despite my family being very lapsed. Is that a picture of a rock badger? Yeah, you they're, up? they're sort of like big hamsters. Like I've seen some on Table Mountain in uh, Cape Town. Oh. They're also called dussies. They've got lots of names. And then it goes on, you know, don't touch the carcasses of pigs. Well, someone's got to move them out the way after the flitching. The Gentiles. You can eat everything uh, in the water that has fins and scales, but not the stuff that doesn't. It's basically, I mean, exactly as, as you expect, you know, with a common sense interpretation of why all these things, you know, like circumcision are in the Bible. It's, it's hygiene at a time when people lived in a desert, isn't it? Don't eat rotting fish. Don't touch a pig's carcass. That's basically what God's saying here. Don't eat three-week-old seafood. Don't do things that might that might hurt you, yeah. Um, but not necessarily relevant now. But again, it's the detail of the list. You know, I knew that, you know, you can't eat prawns. But it's like, here's the list of birds, detestable birds, right? 
The list of detestable <laughs> birds. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich. South African delicacy, oh. isn't it? One of my Jewish cousins was an ostrich farmer. Betraying God's instructions explicitly. The night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind. These are mainly birds of prey. Who are these people who are like, oh, you know what? I could eat a chicken, but I'm going to go after like an eagle owl because <laughs> it's a bit more of a challenge. <laughs> Same amount of meat, but comes with injuries. Uh, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared <laughs> owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture. I mean, fair enough. So there are owls you can eat. Was Leviticus <laughs> paid by the word? <laughs> and he was just like, what can I think of that I wouldn't eat anyway? Pop it down. Here's a question from Robin from Chinor in Oxfordshire, who says, I am lucky enough to live near a kebab van that has won kebab van of the year <laughs> on multiple occasions, most recently in 2022. Atelier's kebab van in Tame, Oxfordshire, in case you're ever in the area. Mm. My partner and I often treat ourselves at the weekend after a tough week at work and it never disappoints. But they close at 11pm. I don't know what the nightlife is like in Tame. It's Tame. Uh. But in my life, I've tended to visit kebab vans only between the hours of about 11pm and 2am, I'd say. I suppose you've got to plan ahead if you want to go to this multiple award-winning kebab van. It's not just an incidental food stop on your drunken way home. Right. It is the focus of your evening. It's a destination in of itself, yeah. Robin says, while their wares seem worthy of this accolade, Ollie answer me this, is this just some bullshit award? And there are multiple others like it in the UK, perhaps even making it up and awarding it to themselves. Wow, that's quite an allegation, isn't it? Or is there some form of kebab guild all kebab van owners have to be part of and they're truly considered one of the best kebab vans in the country? If so, what kinds of things do the judges look for? Right, OK. Well, the award that they won kebab van of the year at was the British Kebab Awards. The big one. It is the big one. I mean, I think to address your very concerns, the organisers have gone out of their way to get some celebrity endorsements on their website so that you can see, you know, that this has some um, prestige. And I don't know, when I was thinking, like, who would you get to endorse the British Kebab Awards? I was thinking maybe the Hairy Bikers, mm. maybe Stavros Flatley. No, Rishi Sunak. <laughs> <gasps> what? Uh, Prime Minister at, at the time of recording. Famously down to earth Rishi Sunak. <laughs> who says on the website of the British Kebab Awards, I am delighted to extend my best wishes for the 11th British Kebab Awards. Uh, hospitality in all its forms plays a critical role in supporting our economy, yada, yada, yada. Kebabs are as much part of our culture and heritage as fish and chips and curries, reflecting our broad diversity and our nation's love of food. When was... Chat GPT invented? Did he just... <laughs> I know it has been a very difficult few years, but I'm confident the sector can and will play a leading role in the UK's recovery. I'm not sure kebab vans will really play a leading role in the UK's recovery, but I know what he means. That does sound like the words of a man who has never frequented a kebab van. <laughs> How can I make this sound like I'm a man of the people, but also a primo economist? Well, um, in the interest of political balance, I should say, Helen, that uh, Sir Keir Starmer has also endorsed the British Kebab Awards. So he goes a bit further. He says, uh, I want to thank the tens of thousands of restaurateurs contributing greatly to their local community and the fabric of British society. 
What I find interesting is that the lower down the political rankings you go, they're more explicit about their love of kebabs. Uh, so um, <laughs> Ed Davey, leader of the Liberal Democrats, has also sent a letter to the British Kebab Awards in which he's he's prepared to be bold enough to say that he, that he eats a kebab. Uh, he says, um, I feel incredibly fortunate to have so many brilliant kebab shops in my constituency of Kingston and Surbiton where I can pick up one of my favourite Donna kebabs, but he doesn't say which. No, he doesn't want to pit them against each other. Whereas... Uh, The Speaker of the House of Commons, (laughs) Sir Lindsay Hoyle, has also sent a letter (laughs) to the British Kebab Awards um, in which he's much more explicit. Yeah. Uh, So he says, kebabs are not just tasty, my favourites being char-grilled chicken or lamb sheesh. They can also be one of the healthier late night snacks you can eat. True. Many people listening may not be aware of the mobile kebab culture in Mm. a lot of British towns. Um, Because when we were at university at dusk, the streets would uh, fill with dozens of kebab vans. Everyone had their preferred one. Sometimes there were two kebab vans parked next to each other and people still had loyalty to one. I mean, it's a particularly Oxford thing, that, because a lot of students in Oxford live in rooms without kitchens. Yeah. Because it's based on the idea that you go to the posh formal dinner every night, but people don't want to feel like they're at Hogwarts every night. You know, you might want to do that two or three times a week. Well, also, a lot of that food is dreadful. And fast food, as as Mr. Speaker says, is unhealthier generally, isn't it? Like, you can't go to McDonald's or KFC every night either. So, like, a kebab van, you, you, you don't have to have chips. You can have no. char-grilled chicken, and that feels relatively healthy for fast food and not posh. So I was thinking, because this question comes from Oxfordshire, whether the uh, trend within the city of Oxford had spilled out throughout the county. I think so, yeah. Creating excellence in tame. The judging panel this year, to answer the question about how it's judged, um, included James O'Brien, Adil Ray and Nadeem Zahawi. Seems like a pretty classy awards. I wonder how many kebabs they had to eat. So the way it works is the members of the public nominate kebab shops. So there are actually 5,000 on the long list. Now, there's no way Whoa. that Adel Ray oh. went around eating 5,000 kebabs. <laughs> <laughs> Topped out at like 3,000. The short list was 153 based on public <gasps> votes. So I think from the short list, and it'd be, but bear in mind you've got like 20 categories, so it's probably an average of seven kebabs to eat in each category. That's manageable, isn't it? If you've got two months to judge, if you've got a celebrity kebab judge, I guess they've only got to go to like Five kebab joints across two evenings. That's a fun evening, isn't it? It's nice to have a project, for sure. (laughs) I wonder if there's a point at which a restaurant is too posh to enter this. No, I don't think so. I think, if anything, the British Kebab Awards would like the fact of having some blue chip entries, right? Well, if the chips are blue, there's something wrong. (laughs) Hello, this is Joe from Seattle. Over the years... uh... You answered at least a couple questions I had um, that were at least vaguely dating related. And I figured I'd give you a report back after all these years. Uh, Yeah, I'm single. This is Will from Durban, South Africa. Hello, Nanali answered me this. Um, How do circumcisions work for for babies? And is it true that some foreskins are used for like stem cell face creams? Hello, Nanali. This is Alyssa in Hawaii. And I have been homesick for days. I need some help. I keep finding bees in my bedroom. They're not appearing anywhere else in my house. Where are they coming from? It's not time. It's not time for the bees. Helen and Ollie, answer me this. I'm 42 years old and I make fountain pens for a living. And ballpoints. Is this something I can expect to do until Social Security kicks in? 
or should I try to find a real job? Here's a question from Madeline from Ely in Cambridgeshire who says, The first novel that I truly loved as a preteen was Danielle Steele's The Ghost. So, on a whim, I downloaded it for my Kindle recently. Although the characters are very oversimplified to my 34-year-old brain, it still holds a lot of charm for me to this day, just without the magical sheen of being 11 years old. I'm really glad that it held up, though. A lot of things don't. Yeah, they don't. When you have to do bedtime stories for kids and you think, I know what I'll do, I'll revisit this book that I loved when I was seven. So many of them. I'm looking at you, Oscar and the Ice Pick by Judy Corbalis. You read it and you think, oh, why did I love this so hard? It's just disappointing. Mm. Oh, let me tell you one that totally holds up and indeed opens up more dimensions when you read it as an adult. Mm-hmm. When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by Judith Carr. Okay. Who also did The Tiger Who Came to Tea. Yes, yes, yes. I reread it last year because I was on a podcast hosted by Janet Ellis of Blue Peter where you... Oh, what a dream. You choose a book from your childhood and then you both read it and um, it was brilliant. It's great. Strong recommend. Janet Ellis loved it. She's a class act. She really is. Uh, Helen, answer me this. How the hell has Danielle Steele written so many books? Yeah. Does she have a ghostwriter or several? Apparently not. There are snippets on the internet saying she claims to write 20 to 22 hours per day. What? But this seems unsustainable. It does, doesn't it? Seems unsustainable to you, Madeline from Ely Cambridgeshire, but you haven't written 200 books, have you? Genuinely, from what I've understood from my research, Helen, and I, I think you probably agree from your intervention when I was reading the question... She doesn't seem to use ghostwriters. I mean, genuinely, none of them have come out and said, I've ghostwritten a book and there would be a story in so doing. Yeah, and often you do know that, like, um, Francine Pascal, who did the Sweet Valley High series, has a a load of people. And, Mm. um, like, is it James Patterson? Who's the guy who writes the Jack Ryan stuff? That's even cited as an example in self-help entrepreneurial books that I've listened to. Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy, yeah. Do what Tom Clancy did. Build yourself a brand and then you don't have to write the books. It's like, you know, it's supposed to be a model you can imitate. Yeah. Well, Mm. another thing that Danielle Steele does not do is sequels. She only writes like fresh novels. Like some of them apparently have thematic overlap. And to be fair, if you've written more than 190 books... That seems like how mu- how many spins on human life are there after a point? <laughs> so she was born in 1947. She first published in 1973. She's written over 190 books. She has also raised nine children. She's mm. someone who gets a lot done. Yeah, I mean, genuinely, the business about not needing much sleep. She says that she only needs four hours sleep per night. Again, why would she lie about that? If that is the case, then that does make sense. Like, you can get a lot done, but it's not good for you. I think people lie about it because there's considered this virtue in overwork. Yes. Yeah, parts from work ethic. So there is a genetic mutation in the gene that regulates circadian rhythms, which apparently fewer than one percent of people have, but it's possible she has it. No one no one has officially checked, I don't think. People with that mutation wake up after three to four hours sleep feeling fully refreshed. But she said that um, when she was raising her children when they were small, she would often work at night because that was the only time she had. And she had to really do as much as possible with that time. And that's why she got used to not having much sleep. And then the publishers were like, can you write more books? She was already writing about four a year. So she Mm. upped it to seven. And they all sold really well. I think uh, every one of her books has been in the bestseller list. Extraordinary. But she works on up to seven books at the same time. She releases several a year and each book takes two and a half years. So she's working on a lot of them at at the same time and like researching one while like editing another. 
And um, she just talks a lot about how she, she has a lot of energy. She doesn't have any hobbies. So she'll just sit at her desk with her typewriter, just hammering out books. And that's all she wants to do. And she'll be like, meals are brought to my desk. Uh, my nails often bleed from all the typing. I sometimes don't comb my hair for weeks. And I start the book and I don't leave the desk until the first draft is finished. She just seems to be very into writing all the time. And she said, when I was first starting out, I had the same agent as Agatha Christie. I was about 19 years old and she was in her 90s. I met her once and I remember she said, I want to die face first in my typewriter. And I feel that way. I mean, I want to go on forever just writing. Wow, lucky agent, huh? Who gets totally. Agatha Christie and then Danielle Steele coming up as a teenager? That's ridiculous. Uh, holy shit. I'm not sure she's with that same agent now. It sounds like she had a few shitty agents at the beginning that don't believe in her, but then she's been with the same one for decades. And also her mentor at the beginning was Alex Haley, who wrote Roots. And he used to call her at three in the morning, asking her if she was working. And she'd be like, yep. And he'd be like, good for you. And then hang up. I was reading about this idea of being asleep for just four hours per night and what that might do to your brain. And one of the things it might do is just make you feel a bit spaced out, a bit drunk, which I recognised from when I worked overnight. And yeah, honestly, I've never read any Danielle Steele before, but it does read a bit like someone was a bit drunk when they wrote them. Um, thanks to Google Books, obviously, now you can just dip in in preview mode just to see what the writing's like. So I randomly chose two titles, Big Girl and The Affair. Uh-huh. And <laughs> check this out because... In my mind, Big Girl sounds a lot like The Affair. (laughs) So here's the first sentences of Big Girl, right? Jim Dawson was handsome from the day he was born. He was an only child, tall for his age, had a perfect physique, and was an exceptional athlete as he grew older, and the hub of his parents' world. I mean, for me, the use of the word hub there is already a bit weird. (laughs) But also, like, this doesn't feel that compelling. It sounds like a round robin to me, but it's easy to read. They were both in their 40s when he was born and he was a blessing and surprise after years of trying to have a child. They'd given up hope. It's very detached, isn't it? And then their perfect baby boy appeared. His mother looked at him adoringly as she held him in her arms. His father loved to play ball with him, right? Okay, he was the star of the little league team. That's the opening sentences of Big Girl. Here's the opening of the affair. Heads always turned when Rose McCarthy walked into a room. Yeah, hotties only in Danielle Steele's (laughs) books. (laughs) Described in this third-party detached way. Nearly six feet tall, she was ramrod straight and impeccably put together with faultless style, long graceful legs and her snow-white hair cut into a chin-length, rounded cap. Her piercing blue eyes miss nothing. Yeah, but to be fair, you've only read two of the 190 books. There could be plenty where it's like, Sharon Jones was a bit scruffy, she was (laughs) five foot five and there was egg down her old, old jumper (laughs) that got misshapen over too many washes. Her parents said Sharon was always a bit of a disappointment, never lived up to her potential. (laughs) I think you could consider this more like a soap opera almost, just this amount of content, because like people are down on soap operas too, but producing an episode of fictional television every day is so hard. And she's producing about that same amount of story per year. And I guess it's like if you if readers are reading all of them, I don't know how many Danielle still completists there are. But if you want to enter that world, then you want to enter it a lot. And probably what you do want is some kind of familiarity rather than her suddenly only writing in iambic pentameter or whatever. She's on Instagram now, isn't she? And she? Um, she has some boss outfits. Oh, I bloody like bet. Like gold trim jumpsuits. She reminds yes. me a bit of my grandma, actually, who wears gold trim yeah. New Balance sneakers like a hip hopper. Good for her. I want to see a bit of that senior glam. It is glam. And she's got, um, surprisingly to me, 
because uh, you tipped me off to her desk. Yes. Do yourself a favour, people, <laughs> and look up her desk online. It's great. Um, maybe I won't even say what her desk is because it's just worth you looking. But behind the amazing desk, I don't know if you noticed, she's got a framed Mickey Mouse Everything's Fucked poster, <laughs> which I wasn't expecting from Danielle Steele. ever helped your mum build a website it is the kind of torment from which there is no respite if she asks what's a widget again i will kill her with a rusty spike or a brick or a spade or a chainsaw but squarespace is so easy even your mum can use it she can drag and drop and cut and paste that's all there is to it so helen put that spike down i beg you for christ's sake don't do it sorry mum Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring this surprise reappearance of Answer Me This. And most episodes that we've put out for the last decade. Squarespace truly are patrons of the arts, but that's not why you should use them. <laughs> you should use Squarespace because they make it super easy for you to create a delightful website that plays nicely on tablet, smartphone, desktop, wherever you want. Oh, and do not underestimate the fact that it does automatically sort things out for tablet and smartphone, not no. just desktop. I don't. I don't underestimate that. I was trying to pay my mobile phone bill the other day. Uh So a telecommunications company's website does not work on mobile. Right. Half the page is cut off. Yeah. Squarespace would never. Squarespace knows how to do it. And they have other cool features as well, which mean that for the price of your Squarespace website, you get stuff that otherwise you'd be paying other companies to do. So like they have member areas, for example. Yes. Which means you can sell access to gated content. You know, if you want to do a video or an online course or a newsletter. Premium content. Premium, yes. Mm. Uh, (laughs) They offer an integrated version of that. Again, saves you time having to go to different providers for that kind of service. And also if you want to do... Mail outs do that through Squarespace, and also the prices are significantly cheaper than the arrivals providing that service. They connect your social media accounts as well, which obviously is a basic thing, but it's it's actually a real lifesaver if, like me, you build a website and then you just can't be asked to update it. You can sync yeah. up your Twitter <laughs> and then it looks like you're always posting news. <laughs> wow, Ollie Man's website is always so fresh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, don't take it from us, though. Head to squarespace.com slash answer for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code answer, answer to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Helen and Ollie, this is Stu from London. I want to know what's in a can of Four Loco. Uh... It's like some spirit drink that's sold around uh, the USA, but it was banned in a load of places. I don't know why. But basically, me and my friends had one can each and uh, in a hotel room in Miami, and it just sent us so loopy. We didn't even leave the place. We ended up rewriting the Bible and crying with laughter so much that we couldn't even breathe. And my other friend had four cans of it, which I warned him not to, um, and he ran out the hotel completely nude, came back with a giant lamp. But yeah, what is Four loco, and why does it make people go nuts? Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Four loco is one of those drinks that I see Americans reference as if we're all supposed to know what it is. Right. <laughs> well, until very recently, you couldn't get it in the UK. You now can kind of in a reformulated version, but only online. Two and a half loco. You, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you'd need to know what you were buying and you'd need to order it to your home. So, I mean, that's not quite the same as being being able to pick it up in a convenience store. It's a premium malt beverage with natural and artificial flavours. 
it's like the Ryanair of Alco Pops. So it's like, you know, like, like Ryanair are like, yeah, we're going to give you a fucking terrible experience. And we don't care because that's our selling point is we're cheap. Like Four Loco is, you're buying this to get hammered. So it's not healthy. We won't tell you what's in it, but you will hit the floor when you drink it. That's what Four Loco is. But are basically really highly alcoholic, um, spirit-based Alco Pops what they call a hard soda or hard seltzer or sometimes canned cocktail. Yeah. The cans certainly do not have the graphic design that suggests they're trying to reach the, like, classy cocktail in a can market. No, it's like the money Jacinto from the good place market, isn't it, that they're going for? Yes. So, like, for UK listeners, the closest thing we have here would be, like, a pre-mixed G&T. That's a bit like I'm going to a picnic concert at Kenwood and I want to pop to Waitrose and have something on the Thameslink before I get there. That's not this. This is College Bros. Yeah, that's the look, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it was, in fact, the company was founded by four friends, I think, or three friends at university, and it was designed to mimic Red Bull and vodka, which was their favourite drink, um, <laughs> in a can, but it was double the strength of that. So the original recipe of Four Loco, um, it's vodka, basically. It's vodka and sugar and carbonated water. But the original recipe of malt liquor and caffeine uh, was apparently the equivalent of four to six beers, an espresso shot, and a Red Bull in a can. Oh, my God. <laughs> they, they say that it no longer contains caffeine, guarana, or taurine. But it Correct. had all of those things in its original formulation until basically the FDA stepped in. Yeah. That's it, yeah. So what happened is basically teenagers were obviously drinking these because they appeal to kind of 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds who get their hands on it because it tastes like a soft drink. And then the caffeine in it, was preventing them from passing out. Whoa. So normally what happens is if, if, if you drink too much at that age, you pass uh. out and that's your body's way of trying to save your life. Right, so you can't drink mm. more. Yeah, but the caffeine was masking the effect of the alcohol. So you drink more than you otherwise oh, would. You don't black out and you end God. up in hospital. And that's where it got its nickname, blackout in a can from. Oh, dear. That's really gross. But yeah, the FDA did step in in 2010. So what you can buy even in the States now, even this thing that uh, Stu has had, is within legal limits. It's just a particularly hard one. So it's it's 12% alcohol. Oh, the one I'm looking at is 14%. I'm looking at their website because the way they describe the flavours is intriguing. I'm looking at the can of red, which is 14%, and they say, we're not going to tell you what red tastes like. You'll just have to try it yourself and see. But you've definitely tasted this flavour before. That's it. Oh my That's God. what you get. Like when you vomited up last night's curry. <laughs> yeah, when you, when you accidentally bit your tongue as you hit the garter. Um, <laughs> what's 14% is that the equivalent of like a strong glass of wine I Wait, can't like quite figure it out no it, it is if you down the whole thing which let's be honest that's what it's designed to do yeah it's the same booze quotient of a bottle of average wine shit right gold flavour tastes like gold not much more we can say it's like Brooklyn Beckham's photo book captions <laughs> do you remember though in the I think late 90s when they started marketing Alcopops yeah hooch Bacardi Breezers yeah Bacardi Breezer was my order when I was 16 yeah and people really outraged whereas those were probably like quite a low percentage compared to Four Loco yes and actually those products have stuck around haven't they and one of the reasons for it I think is that you can measure how much alcohol you are drinking it's quite difficult if you're getting measures of cocktails but if it's a pre-bottled thing, you know, it used to be only beer. Could you see exactly what the alcohol content was? Because it's in a bottle. But actually, if it's a bottled uh, Bacardi or Martini or whatever, you can actually see exactly what it is. It actually, it can be more responsible drinking rather than irresponsible. Okay, kids, make sure you drink a Four loco rather than water because <laughs> you can't be too careful. That's definitely our advice. Here's a question from Anonymous in Texas. 
another anonymous question. So this has got to be some uh, dangerous stuff. Is so juicy that it cannot have a human <laughs> name on it. Ollie, answer me this. Why is it called a hoedown? Is it because farmers put their hose down to dance or sing? What even is a hoedown? I mean, actually, it's interesting because I, I remember thinking the exact same question when I was last riding Tristan the Tractor. Who's he? Um, <laughs> he's, he's a children's attraction here in Hertfordshire, which I've been on literally dozens of times because it's about 20 minutes from my house. Um, and it goes around in a circle around a farm at Willow's Activity Farm and it plays songs at you mm. if you're happy and you know it, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the songs it plays is A Farmer's Hoedown. And I was listening to that in the sideways rain, sort of pretending to my children that I was enjoying it. And I was thinking, <laughs> what is that connection? Because they've obviously gone for like a farm vibe at this activity farm. Yeah. Um, country and Western music originally comes from rural communities. where Were they literally wielding hose when they were dancing? Is that what it is? But no, but sort of yes. Huh. So the reason it's called a hoedown is because the dance style mimics hoeing corns and potatoes. Oh. oh. Hmm. which you'd think would be a bit of a busman's holiday when you're a farmer to go on the dance floor and then do what you've been doing all day. Maybe you want to do what you know. Well, I, I suspect it's more like a polite way in the 1800s to be like, he's shaking his ass. You know what I mean? Like, oh. he's doing a hoe dance, but that's what he's doing. It looks like you're digging potatoes where you're shuffling your bum in a lady's face. That's what you're doing. Hmm. And then it just later came more broadly to mean a party featuring lively dancing to folk music. An illustrated history of Monroe County, Iowa, published in 1896, states, and I quote, Hoedown, such is the name commonly applied to the free-for-all public dance. While those who participate in the hoedown are by no means rude or scantily civilised, yet (laughs) at the public dance house they come in contact, and for the time being at least, are placed on the same social level, with persons of both sexes whom they would not recognise on the street or in the home. Ah, so it was sort of like a great leveller. It was a nightclub, wasn't it? Everyone levelled by dance. I feel like I'd enjoy a hoedown. Yes, it sounds good. So no actual hose present. No hose present, but people that had, you know, in, in very recent times been holding hose. Possibly just let go of their hoe to come to the hoedown, okay. but they didn't bring the hoe with them. Leave your hose outside. Put your hose <laughs> yeah, down exactly. to come to the hoedown. Helen and Ollie answer me this. Why is it when people speak over a town or in a supermarket or an airplane, they have to speak with this cadence? Thank you. I have a cat named The Other, and uh, numerous people have asserted recently that The Other is a genuinely bad name for a cat, or maybe for anything. So, um, Helen and Ollie, answer me this. Is The Other a bad name for a cat? If so, I will rename this cat Galron. This is Miriam and her son in Edinburgh. Yes, because I bad one. <laughs> How was a big kid made? Um, you know why a big kid can bust their teeth on their self? Oh, Helen. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Time for a question from Zoran in Washington. Strong name, strong state. They say, last year, around this time, I lost my father. Very sorry to hear that. During my bereavement leave from work, one of the managers threw out all the plants I had cultivated and grown (gasps) into the trash. She then lied to my face about it when I asked her why. They're not saying why they suspect that she did it. So I don't know what the lie was. But anyway. Insult upon insult. And faced no consequences for her actions. (sighs) 
Zoran continues, In some ways, this was a good thing, as it caused me to reassess my priorities, and I left that job for a new career. Wow. Things are going well for me all around. Glad to hear it. Yeah, very glad to hear it. However, I've not been able to really let go of my anger towards this person and at her cruelty for throwing away something I'd worked on for years while I was on leave for losing my dad. And then they put parenthetically, it was a retail job and the general manager of the store wanted the plants displayed. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't it wasn't coming down from the general manager. It was just this one person no. acting alone with malice. So, Helen, answer me this. How do I get over this? How do I simply let this go? Every time I think about it, my jaw clenches and I get quietly and softly angry. I'm really upset for you. This really sucks. Hmm. On top of the grief that you already had, it's just another completely avoidable source of hurt and disrespect. Unlikely, though, isn't it, that the manager thought about that? I mean, she may indeed have been taking advantage of the fact you were on bereavement leave from work to do this, but not because you're grieving, but because you're on leave. I mean, if you'd been on holiday, she right. probably would have done the same thing. She probably didn't right. think Turn your this will compound minute. their emotions. Yeah. When I was on bereavement leave for my dad dying, LBC replaced me with Nigel Farage. Hmm, classy. I felt that more because I thought, God, they took the opportunity when I wasn't there to, to have him, of all people, sit in on my show. Yeah. But I mean, broad brush... That was probably an inevitable thing that would have happened anyway. And they were just, they weren't thinking, oh, well, his dad's dead, so let's do it now. They were just thinking, we've got a spare slot on Saturday, let's do that. Do you think the grief at the plants that Zoran is feeling is just wrapped up in the grief at losing a parent? And that's why it feels more intense than maybe grief at just plants would be on its own? Yes. I put that back to you because um, we should share with the listeners that since we last recorded, sadly, your father's passed away as well. Yeah, no, I mean, it was it was less sad than the couple of years uh, preceding his death. His death was actually not sad. It was quite lovely. But um, yeah, what emotions do I have that are wrapped up with? Uh, well, I, that's why I want to put it back on you, because I, I feel like I can yeah. identify those things from 2016 when it happened to me. Yeah. But I don't know whether you're in the midst of it. You can't identify it, but I'm prepared to bet that yeah, right now you not. are getting angry about stuff <laughs> that previously you wouldn't have, or you are feeling things more deeply, and it is a kind of channeling of emotion that happens. Yeah, well, there was a really shitty week a few months before he died, and it was a week that ended with me and my brother Rick having to put my dad into a home and him really not wanting to go. Mm. It was just a temporary one that time, but... Um, it made everything else that happened in that week. There was some like awful audio industry stuff that I was like tangled with. Yeah, two different kinds of awful audio industry stuff that made me really angry. And then I was like, oh, good. And then on Friday, I get to go and put dad in a home. Mm. So it was just a real lump of uh, shit <laughs> that week. Zoran may be still grieving for their father. They may be feeling that grief for the rest of their life. And if the plant grief is connected to that because of the confluence of events, then that might last longer. But on the other hand, like just shit that people do that doesn't make sense does stick with you for a really long time. It is a weird thing to do as well because plants are living things. I think it's quite hard to just throw them away unless they're dead because usually you like pass them on to someone else who might enjoy them or give people cuttings and stuff. It just seems very unmotivated. Mm. Who's angry about plants in the first place? Plants are a weird thing to be angry about. It's not a divisive collection like sex toys or trolls, you know? It's just a thing <laughs> that lives and breathes and makes people happy, and she's angry at that. So something else is going on in her head, but it's probably nothing to do with your bereavement. Maybe there were a load of Audrey twos. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, I'm withered and dry, I've got no blood left. 
is what is keeping you in this angry state? Is it that you want an apology and you want some acknowledgement from that person of your feelings and that this was a shitty thing that they did and it yeah. hurt you? Yeah. Because unfortunately, you it sounds like you're unlikely ever to get that. I think what happens is that just over time, you learn how to live without having got that kind of closure or that kind of recognition of wrongdoing. But it can take years. When my dad moved out of his parental home, his mother threw away all of his records mm. without asking. She was like, oh, I thought you didn't want them anymore. And he's like, no, Costa, like, why would you think that? And they'd meant so much to him because in South Africa, it had been quite hard to get much up-to-date anything at the time. And um, I don't think he ever got over that. Whereas do you think she was just thinking, I'm not really a Bob Dylan kind of girl? <laughs> uh, I don't know whether it was malevolent or just thoughtless or what. I think it's right that Zoran has said in the question at least, how do I let this go? Yeah. Recognising that it is up to you. Like I think, you know, my mum's a hypnotherapist. She'd say something like, um, what you need to do is imagine this person who's made you so angry and imagine them getting smaller and smaller and smaller until they're insignificant and then they float oh. up like a balloon into the sky. Things like that. So they're eaten by a flesh-eating plant. Well, that's it. I'd probably go a bit harder than that and like write an awesome vengeance story about stabbing her to death. But don't do it. Just <laughs> get those emotions out in your head and then feel like you've had that moment. It's happened. It's done, you know? Do you think, actually, that this former colleague took all the plants and they're now all in her house? Oh, Wow. She was like, those are some real nice plants. I'm going to take this opportunity and then I'll tell Zora and I threw them away. Here's a question from Jane in New Zealand who says, I have an 11-year-old Labradoodle and ever since he was a puppy, he has loved to gobble up my snotty tissues. Mm. Uh, uh, fortunately for him, I have allergies and a leaky sinus, so there is a ready supply. Mm. <laughs> He will go to such lengths to procure these snotties, she's put that in inverted commas, that's what she calls them, uh, that I've ended up just handing them to him rather than risking him injure himself trying to extract them from the rubbish bin. Uh, a couple of years ago, we got a second dog, a Shih Tzu. Initially, she showed no interest in my used tissues. Fancy that. Uh, but suddenly, she's almost as keen as him. So Helen answered me this, why do my dogs want to eat my wet snot? Will they figure out it's inside me and try to eat me too? And is it as gross as my family tell me it is that I've let them have my sodden tissues? I think sodden tissues are gross inside and outside of a dog's digestive system. Right. They're just a gross item, which is one reason why I do appreciate handkerchiefs, because they are less gross as well as reusable. My dad used to carry a clean hanky every day. He also used to wear his trousers very low slung. So he'd come home from work in the evening with a handkerchief dangling out of his very low slung back pocket. Mm. And one of the dogs would um, steal it. And when she was a puppy, she used to swallow them whole, which is quite a large amount of her puppy body filled with handkerchief. Jeez. But then she would just shit them out whole. I suppose that's the advantage of a cotton hanky rather than a Kleenex. You get it back. You get, you get it back. <laughs> I don't think it's great. We've talked on the show before about dogs eating bras and socks and things and it's not ideal, but yes. they, they will do it because they they do love to eat things that smell or taste of you, their beloved human. Is that what that is? It's one of the reasons why. There's actually lots of reasons. I think also the grossness to dogs. Dogs are very comfortable with eating excretions like fox shit and stuff. Yes, 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 yes. It's also the softness of the tissues, apparently. It's not the flashy visuals that you just mentioned. It's that 
it's sort of stoking their hunting instinct where there's a little soft thing that they can rip to shreds and then eat. Mm. But if dogs crave paper, it may mean that they have some kind of nutritional need that is not being met. Mm. There's a medical condition called pica, which uh, makes people as well, not just dogs, crave um, substances that we don't consider edible. Like you hear about people that been eating earth or metal, things like that. And it might be a symptom of anemia or uh, zinc deficiency. Or in dogs, it could be that they have some kind of digestive problem. Uh, Maybe they have worms or um, diabetes or something that's making them really hungry. Mm. Or it could be anxiety. Really? Yeah. But excitingly, uh, to me particularly, since we last Mm. uh, podcasted together, Ollie, Mm. big event in your life. (laughs) tells you how parochial my life is hey (laughs) um but yes we've got a puppy we've got a puppy in our house yeah what's his name his name is buzz cute um yes it is it took a while to get to the right name but i feel like that's cross-generational appeal you know grandparents think aldrin kids think light year yep um smart indicates some sense of uh, energy which you want from a from an eager puppy he's a black tan poodle crossed with some sort of terrier I was about to say he's exactly what I feared, but I do love him and he is cute. But I mean, I've never been a dog person because for me, they're just a bit stupid and that's what he is. Like he's that's super clever so in terms of he can them. learn something. Yeah, but he's just, he's, there's no discernment, Helen. Like he doesn't, he's not choosing to be with me because he likes me. He just is programmed to like me. And regardless of what I do, like feed him my snotty tissues, he'd continue to be there. And I just find that a bit much. Someone doesn't want unconditional love. I don't. I want to earn it. Hi guys, uh, this is Nick from Surrey calling. About five or six years ago, my family decided to take my grandparents to see Burt Bacharach and his band in concert at a prestigious London concert venue that shall remain nameless, but which apparently has amazing acoustics. When we got there, it was quite clear that it was going to be filmed for television, even though we'd had no notification that it was going to be. Burt Bacharach uh, came on. He was introduced by Michael Grade, who decided to warm up the crowd by spending about 15 minutes talking about himself and how his life was supposedly steeped in show business. When the music started playing, the music was really, really loud, and the singers kind of struggled to be heard over the band. Uh, But when Burt Bacharach and Michael Grade had their conversations in between the songs, we couldn't hear them, essentially. Small ripples of laughter went up from each anecdote, but only in the first five rows of this giant concert venue. We were pretty close to them, and we couldn't hear what they were saying at all. And song after song happened, and then in between it kept coming back to them, and uh, yeah, no one could hear what was being talked about. And slowly there were signs of dissent in the room. You could see people leaving their seats and going up to kind of ushers into the big giant tech desk, and they were just literally being ignored. And uh, people were very patient, and it got to the second half, and we just assumed that they were going to fix this. And when it came back for the second half, it carried on again until people started um, shouting out. And they said, sorry, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. And eventually, Burt Bacharach stopped talking. And a lady said, sorry, we haven't heard anything you've said so far tonight. And Burt Bacharach made a kind of weak joke and said, oh, you know, that's a shame because it's been good stuff. And that got some applause. But again, only in the first five or six rows. Apparently, they chalked it up to Michael Grade, old Mr. Show Business, not turning the mics on before they went on. Uh, But I don't think that's true at all. I think it's entirely down to the fact that the BBC were there filming it. When this show finally turned up on iPlayer, none of the dissent, the people kind of leaving their seats, the shouting out, 
the general faces of audience members looking fucked off. None of that made the edit, funnily enough. So, Helen and Ollie, answer me this. Is this what happens every time a music show is filmed for TV? Because it was fucking awful. Now, if we know anything about you, answer me this, listeners, it is that you like fact-based entertainment and you like it for free. So (laughs) how does a free month of unlimited access to educational platform Wondrium sound? Doesn't sound shit to me. Sounds wonderful. (laughs) So there are over 8,000 hours of entertaining but also educational things. I mean, these are genuine, these are like academics and professors teaching you about stuff they know. I just noticed that they have a 29-minute thing about Treating your poisoned pet, which I thought might be useful given the the dog tissue ingestion chat. (laughs) Uh, How to keep your pet safe from certain foods, plants, common household items that can be dangerous. That would be useful. Yes. So I recommend that uh, because, as we said, you you get to watch Wondrium for free thanks to our magnificent offer. And then when you're there, you can be like, well, I have now know how how to stop my dog from uh, ingesting poisons around the home. Maybe I'll go and watch uh, Wondrium's new series about black inventors, which I've been watching. There's only two episodes so far, so I hope they're going to add more. One is about Madam C.J. Walker, who um, was the first female self-made millionaire, apparently, but she basically kind of founded modern black hair care right uh, as companies and like even now at sephora there are products named after her the madame range and you can listen on the move as well by the way so it is a video site but if you're more of a podcast type person you can download the episodes and then listen in the app as a podcast so whilst you're multitasking walking the dog whatever uh you can learn like i did the everyday guide to wine so i don't feel like a fool in the supermarket <laughs> learn about what you love and love learning about it with wondrium do what we did sign up for wondrium now they are offering you a free month of unlimited access yes so go to wondrium.com slash answer that's w-o-n-d-r-i-u-m dot com slash answer, answer. Here's a question that I feel is very much in the vein of a classic answer me this question. <laughs> it's from Brandon who says, answer me this, Ollie. Can you check your own semen for sperm with a home microscope? What now? Whilst I'm on the air? Brandon says, I have five children, which is many children. And so about two years ago, I had a vasectomy, mm-hmm. which as a whole is fantastic. But occasionally my wife will worry that it has healed and she is pregnant again. Mm. Uh, that can happen. I don't think it's too common, but it can happen. It can. It's pretty rare. We'll get on to that. We bought our oldest child a pretty good microscope up to a thousand times uh, one Christmas, and it usually sits unused. I mean, to be fair, most microscopes usually sit unused, including in labs. <laughs> the other day we were worried and decided to see if we could see anything. Mm. I rather enjoyed the experience as it involved collecting a sample and then smearing it on my child's Christmas present. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but... We weren't able to see anything in particular on the microscope. I would love for us to figure out how to check it at home for both the peace of mind and the frequency of testing. Do we need special dyes or slides or something? First up, let me just question the nature of your need in the first place. Um, Because, Uh as you were saying, Helen, this sort of phantom healing vasectomy, I mean, this is from the NHS website, right? In most cases, vasectomy is more than 99% effective, out of 2,000 men who are sterilised, one will get a woman pregnant during the rest of his lifetime. Male sterilisation is considered permanent. Once it's done, you don't have to think about contraception again. So you've got a one in 2,000 chance of being that man. So odds are low, 
if you really want belt and braces, there's a simpler solution than just jizzing into your child's toy. <laughs> and that's barrier contraception. Like, you can carry on using a condom and then the risk is zero. But I guess if you're the kind of person who wanted a vasectomy in the first place, maybe you didn't want to use a condom and that's why you had one. Or a copper IUD. They're 99% effective. You can leave them in for 10 years. Right. Peace of mind. Okay. But on the question of whether you can do this, <laughs> ick factor aside, no, you don't need special slides. Um, although, obviously, mm-hmm. for hygiene, you may want a special semen slide to be put aside. What you do need to do is wait five minutes for the semen to liquefy before you put it on the slide. So it might be that oh. you didn't do that. And then, you know, that, that was a false result that you were looking at. Oh, so you don't deliver it directly onto the slide. <laughs> don't deliver it directly onto the slide. Wait five minutes. Uh, and then you want a droplet, basically. But as far as it goes, uh, yes, you can view sperm at 400 times magnification. Wow. Martin, why are you looking at microscopes on your computer? Well, I was was Googling it. And uh, if you go to Microscope World, they advertise a basic semen microscope. Yes. And there's an intermediate sperm microscope and an advanced uh, semen microscope, all at different levels of magnification. (laughs) The advanced one. If you fancy the splurge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yes. It's about 200 quid, isn't it? You can get a biological microscope, which is what they have in school science classrooms. So actually, if, if you are someone who needs to investigate your sperm because you're trying to conceive, for example, that would be the more traditional reason, like you actually want to see sperm there, then yes, you could order your own microscope that's of lower power even than your child's one. You don't need one as powerful as a thousand times magnification. And yes, you could do this. Isn't part of the issue that if you're looking for no sperm and you see no sperm, you don't know whether that's because there aren't any sperm or because you haven't done the microscope right? I did learn through this research, though, that um, when you do the mandatory uh, semen test in most countries, which is around 12 weeks after you have the SNP so that the doctor can see whether it's worked. Mm. Um, you need to have had 20 ejaculations since the vasectomy. Gosh. Oh. And the reason for that is to make sure there is no sperm remaining in your tubes. Right, uh, so you're clearing it out. Seems like a lot. That is a very determined sperm that is still clinging on 19 ejaculations later, I felt. Yeah, but there's so many sperms in each ejaculation there's more than a million so i guess it it does take some effort to get all of them to vacate the premises also presumably if you see like one or two sperm that's still probably not enough sperm for the impregnation to happen statistically oh sure but enough to make you buy your own jizz microscope specially for the purpose and carry on doing this obsessively there's an alarm going off outside. I think maybe they heard us saying sperm too it's many sperm times. Alarm. Now the Canadian police are coming. <laughs> Shut down this vulgarity. I think about time. I think that is our happy climax. I don't think we're going to go anywhere after this. I know we usually sign off the episodes by inviting you to send us your questions, but uh, we don't know whether or when we're coming back. Just stay alert forever. Stay subscribed forever, just in case. Yeah. I'll let you know. I mean, this has worked well, hasn't it? If we do do an annual or biannual special like this, then um, we will probably do the same thing and release a trailer in advance. So stay subscribed yeah. to our feed. Also worth bearing in mind that on that feed, there are 200 episodes of Answer Me This that are still on there for free for you to enjoy. Yeah. That's a lot. And if you get through all of those, then there's 200 more at AnswerMeThisStore.com. And also uh, at AnswerMeThisStore.com. Our six themed specials. Home entertainment is only three years old. So in, in, in relative terms in our room, <laughs> that is recent and it's a cracker. That's a real treat. Do buy those because we still get the money and we like money. 
<laughs> it's useful. It's, it is useful. You know, those microscopes don't buy themselves. And there's no corporate overlords here. We've we're paid to do this by the adverts that you've heard and uh, and that. Yeah. So if you'd like to uh, contribute, answer me this store.com. And please listen to our other work. If you've missed us, we're still available in Podland. We are. Yeah. I make the entertainment show about language, The Illusionist, and it's a rollicking good time as well as uh, got a lot of that information you like delivered in the entertainment style. Yes. So you can hear that at theillusionist.org and in the pod places. And uh, also I do live streams and stuff for the Illusionist patrons. So you can get on board that if you want at patreon.com slash illusionist. Oh, if you like listening to me and Martin on podcast together, you could listen to the recent episode of The Illusionist that we did called The Box. Oh, yeah. Which is about uh, Erwin Schrodinger of cat fame. Uh, what's Ollie Mann up to in the large catalogue of Ollie Mann work? Yeah, I suppose I'll just focus it down to the two that I'd most like you to check out. If you like Answer Me This because you like pub quiz type trivia, then do check out my daily show, Today in History with the Retrospectors. It's just 10 minutes a day. And every day on that show, we uncover a curious moment from that day in history. Yeah, you've got some brilliant uh, topics. Thank you. Yeah, recently we've uh, told the story of the only woman who was Queen of France and then Queen of England. Mm. Uh, we've done um, that moment that Jarvis Cocker invaded Michael Jackson's set at the Brit Awards and we're good uh, as us. I can't believe that's history now. I know. It's proper uh. old though. Mm. Actually, if you like the history of brands, if that's another thing that you like here on Answer Me This, we've done the history of bird's eye frozen foods. We've done how Hitler created the Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, jeez. What a broad portfolio he had. Mm. It's a fun show. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Just search Today in History with the Retrospectors. It has a bright orange logo. Please follow us. And then the other one is The Modern Man, which I've been making since 2015. So most of you probably yeah. do all know about that. Uh, M-A-N-N. It's upon my name. We test out trends submitted by our audience. We take a listener sex question each episode. Um, there's over 100 episodes of that show to catch up on. Just search for The Modern Man. M-A-N-N. Martin. Well, I make a podcast called Neutrino Watch, which is sort of experimental fiction that regenerates every day, thanks to computer code. Uh, and there's music, and there's stories, and monologues, and all sorts of things uh, made by me and Jeff Edman. I'm in the final year of a podcast called Song by Song, which is about the music of Tom Waits. So final year because you've gone through all of Tom Waits' back catalogue? Yeah, we, we, we've got a couple of films, then we've got his final album or so far uh, from 2011 and that's going to happen this summer and then we're we're finished we've had some really great guests on recently like um uh, jeffrey craner from welcome to night vale and uh, musician krista couture and poet tim clare so do do yeah listening at songbysongpodcast.com yeah don't forget about us but uh, do come back if answer me this ever reappears in your feed again five years from now 50 years from now <laughs> when we're ghosts in 300 years and we always used to end by saying our website in tandem. So I feel we should do that. There is still stuff on there you might be interested in, like links to all the things we've just said and some words. Oh, yeah. Loads of stuff. Um, so that website is answermethispodcast.com. Sounded just as delightful as ever. As did your questions. Thank you for those. And see you again one day on the internet. I hope so. It's been fun. It has been fun. Bye. Bye. Bye.